Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to my film of 2018. Thus far, bear in mind there's still time for them to make and release Paddington 3 and I haven't seen Avengers Infinity War yet, so there's still time. But it is John Krasinski's astonishing horror movie, A Quiet Place. And joining me to shout its praises loudly from the rooftops over the next hour or so at the risk of attracting attention from nasty space bastards that will rip your head off are... Empire's editor-in-chief, Terry White. Chris Hewitt. How are you? I'm all right. I thought I was the nasty space bastard that ripped your head off. <laughs> Clearly no, not. No, you're from the north of England. <laughs> Same thing, right? <laughs> Pretty much. To James it is, anyway. Because uh, also we have Empire's... What's your job title again? I can never keep track of it. I mean, who cares? <laughs> Let's be honest. Empire's who cares in chief... <laughs> <laughs> which sums up so much about you. It's James Dyer. Hello. I was trying to do some kind of humorous riff on not speaking because it's a quiet place. But oh, I wish. Like it doesn't work on radio. No, so. this isn't radio, James. It's much the same thing. It's radio on demand. That's what it's, podcasts are. It's a podcast. You, yeah, can, you can say things on a, on the podcast you can't say in a radio program, like mm. shit. And fuck monkey. Speaking yeah. of fuck monkeys... <laughs> It's Ben. Excuse me. I'm not going to stand for that. <laughs> it's Ben Travis. <laughs> Deputy, we, who cares? We needed a bridge. I'm just saying, we needed a segue. That's all I had. And there were no other segues? There was nothing. That was it. Fine. That'll do. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Ever fucked a monkey, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> if my parents are listening to this, I'm so sorry. Do your parents listen to the podcast? I think they have a bit. Well, we've a got all bit. sorts of problems but here. But to be fair, I don't think they're going to go and see A Quiet Place because they don't really do scary films, so they might not listen to this one. All right. Thank okay. God. <laughs> well, this got salty quickly. <laughs> I expected. Uh, before we dig into A Quiet Place, we're going to hear first from the film's star, writer and director, Jim from The Office. Uh, except, of course, he is oh so much more now than Jim from The Office, as he proved with this incredible directing effort. Uh, it is John Krasinski of course. He came into London last week ahead of the film's huge opening Snigger Fanar uh, in the States and we had a good old natter about all kinds of spoilerific things but we started with the big question. The one on everyone's lips. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this very very special spoiler special for A Quiet Place by the film's Writer, director, star. Did you do anything else, John Krasinski, or was that it? Was that it? I think I executive produced. You executive missed that produced? one. Yeah, okay. come on now. Okay, shall I do it again? Yeah. Did you Did you make the tea? <laughs> did you? Uh, did were you were your best? I did. Boy? I just made tea, um, and uh, I tried to do craft service. That didn't go well. Okay. People got salmonella from the chicken. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. <laughs> um, I love this film, and I'm going to so much. I, but I'm going to start off with a question that a, a few people on Twitter have been urging me to oh, ask. Okay. All right. Uh, because clearly you have worked out the minutiae of this world yep. and the sound levels that people can make yep. and how this family goes about the see where this is going. You, see, you know where it's going. <laughs> All I'm going to say is that the average person farts 14 times a day. 14 times, is that true? 14 times Has a that day. been scientifically proven? That has been scientifically proven. Uh, Would you say you're an over or under I'm kind of guy? very above average. <laughs> Very above average. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I know this is a very serious film, but did you discuss it at any point? What happens if someone has to, you know, suppress something? Well, if my daughters are listening, yeah, the term we use is toot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's funny. I, we did talk about coughing. Uh-huh. Uh, Noah brought it up. Noah was our um, sort of 
our, our feedback machine. He was our, our uh, sounding board for a lot of this. And he said, what happens if we need to cough? And I said, well, you guys would know to pick up a pillow and cough into the pillow. And he went, ooh, brilliant. He loved that. So I only imagine now little Noah putting a pillow on his behind and <laughs> farting into a pillow, knowing or, that it would save his life. Or just running as fast as you can to the yeah, waterfall. exactly. Just try to crop dust. As long as they're not loud and violent, you're going to be fine. <laughs> but clearly you did spend a lot of time working out the day-to-day routine of yes. how much noise is made and what, what sort of noise levels you can make without exactly. giving yourself yeah. away. Yeah, so- well, the big thing was it can't be a silent movie. And I know that... You know, we've been telling people that it's not a silent movie. It's a quiet movie, which is really important because there's actually a lot of sound in the movie, yeah. which is really, really fun. But to your point, you know, it's it, it, it was never going to be a silent movie. Certainly, it's impossible to live silently. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, well, there are obviously sounds you can make. I also loved the idea of your second and third chance, meaning if you did make a sound, you go into a whole nother level of survival, which is now that I've made a sound – if I run, I'm dead. If I stay still, I may be dead. But the idea of, you know, sort of the Jurassic Park kitchen scene of if oh. you make a sound, you have to stay still and hope that they don't get to you. Yeah. That was always on, in my mind. Uh, writing the script, how much how much did you cut out during that? I mean, did you write scenes that didn't make it in? Did you film scenes that didn't make it in of, of, of precisely that, that sort of peril? Yeah, no, this is one of those anomalies where truly the the movie you see is almost exactly the script that I rewrote. And it, it, certainly the ideas that um, Beck and Woods came up with, the ideas there, the set pieces that's, that a lot of the set pieces they came up with are there. But the rewrite that I did was not only a rewrite of the script, it was also my directing. I, you, the cool thing about rewriting a script is you can start the directing process right there. You can mm-hmm. write in shots, you can write in ideas, you can write in all these different things. So the one thing we knew about this was that this was going to be a bit of a puzzle box and it wasn't one of those movies that you could just start shifting scenes around because the tension that was built is certainly, you know, even Emily, I remember saying um, when she signed on, one of her first questions was, you're not going to shift these scenes around, right? Because certainly, you know, her pregnancy and her yeah. labor yeah. sort of has to have a graduation that yeah. goes to a certain place to, that culminates. And so she said, if you start swapping these scenes, I'm going to look like I'm breathing really heavy way too early. And then I'm not really affected by this birth at all later. And it's things like that, that you really, she's not wrong. It was absolutely true that the build of this movie had to happen slowly. And then sort of the wheels of the train had to come off. That said though, I mean, you get into it right away. Yeah. Uh, I can rarely remember being as tense from frame one. Of wow. The movie thank you. As, as with this film, because right away, you know, something bad could happen at any second. Right. And something bad does happen really early in the film. Yeah. Uh, and that is a huge moment. Uh, the, the death of a young child is something that has driven a lot of horror films over the years. Yep. I'm thinking of Don't Look Now is one that, that pops into my head mm-hmm. almost immediately. Uh, but as a storyteller, it must be a really difficult place to go to. It is. It's absolutely. And certainly as a father of two, it's a really difficult place. But I thought instead of being afraid of it to use the power of what that can be. I remember... Truly, because I will get into it later, I'm sure I was not really a horror person because of certain experiences like this. I remember being a kid and seeing the scene in Pet Cemetery that was terrifying of the child dying. And that was really intense. And the for me, the the power of a child dying set up what I found to be a great opportunity to instill the terror of this reality, meaning you were never safe that 
the the movie version would say, well, the child can't die because nobody can take that. So you start already breaking the rules if you go down that path. And so what I wanted to do, and I, I made the conscious decision to make it the first scene because I wanted that rule to actually unlock the movie for the rest of the experience, which is, oh my God, if that just happened, then now I have no idea where this goes. And yeah. so that's why I put it up front. Well, what it also does is it sets things in motion. It sets the... The idea of the pregnancy mm-hmm. in motion mm-hmm. as well. I, I've done some reading about parents who've experienced loss of a young child, mm-hmm. and uh, very often they will have uh, a child. Uh, I'm almost, so glad you mentioned that. Because almost immediately. I've had the question in a bunch where people say, that's ridiculous. Who would ever have a kid? And it's like, yeah. you should read some of this stuff. It's actually a horribly heartbreaking thing that people, um, some people split up, which is horrible. The, the divorce rate, I think, of... Uh, Parents who have lost children is very, very high, which is terrifyingly sad. And then the other version is you force yourself to move forward. It almost becomes this um, uh, recalibration of your entire life by trying to have another child. And I I think it's somewhere in the middle in this. Yeah, I don't think um, I love the idea that it wasn't planned. Yeah. Because then you start thinking about the idea of what are your options in a world that you can't make any sound. There are no options. So it becomes this ticking time bomb that is a beautiful gift and yet a horrible curse at the same time. Precisely. It's like you wouldn't choose to do that. I don't think in, in these, in this set of circumstances, right, right. but once it happens, then that you have to deal with but when a man and a woman are alone <laughs> together in a silent barn, <laughs> trying desperately not to make any sense. Exactly, any yeah, yeah. There's a deleted scene. It's a weird turn on to keep silent during the whole thing. <laughs> um, maybe the, maybe the other creatures just watching silently. <laughs> exactly. They're just pervy creatures. <laughs> Uh, and so then you have you know the the idea of the pregnancy, and that leads to another scene that I found was really tough, and it must have been tough for you as a uh. as a director and as a dad as well. The sequence where you, you have to put a baby into a box and put the lid on the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you're hitting on. You know, I actually haven't talked about this. You're right. I haven't been able to talk about any of this. This is like therapy. This is wonderful. <laughs> um, that was the most intense thing I've ever done in my career. And I mean, like, from firing guns or jumping out of different things, like, there was nothing more scary to me than this scene because I didn't expect how viscerally I would respond. And yes, probably because I was a father of a young uh, mm. baby at the time, but just as a human being, the, the, that sweet child, the parents were nice enough to let us do this live because we explained the whole thing to them. We absolutely didn't want them to feel um, taken advantage of or anything like that. And we even said, we can do this with a fake baby mm. and we'll just do the um, laying into the box part with the, with your, with your real child. And they said, no, 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 it's fine. She won't know the difference. And the saddest part was the first take, the baby was smiling at me, having the best time ever. <laughs> and just like, this is great. There's candlelight. You seem nice. You have an animal on your face. This is great. And then you could see as soon as I put the mask on her, she was yeah. like, this doesn't feel right. None of yeah. this feels right. Yeah. And she started to scream in a real primal scream. And I started to get so emotional. I started to well up. Uh, truth be told, when we put the... um top on the box you couldn't hear a thing she went from screaming violently it's weird that a prop box actually did what we would have needed it to do in the real world (laughs) and we put it on and you couldn't hear the scream and i had to run off set which was like 10 feet over and i i've never had a first ad call cut 
faster. Oh my god! So right. as soon as I put that box on and left, they were like, "Cut, cut!" Oh my god! And like everyone was just like, "Get the child out of the box!" And sure enough, it was basically a puffy bed, and there was plenty of oxygen in the bed. There was holes everywhere for the baby to breathe, obviously. But the entire crew had a nervous breakdown uh, <laughs> on that scene. So we could only do two takes because I think I would have lost. Well, I, I would have lost myself, but also the crew would have walked out because they couldn't watch that again. <laughs> oh, my God. Imagine, imagine if you as an actor had walked out on you as a director. Been- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> John's in his trailer. Well, I'm going to go talk to him. <laughs> Send in the executive producer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn, that's me, too. <laughs> oh, shit. We're out of trouble. Um, so, but again, that leads. I mean, it's like a, a chain reaction of events to the really heart-wrenching moment where your character sacrifices himself. Mm-hmm. And there's so much going through. His mind, I imagine, at that moment. Not only yeah. is he saying goodbye to his daughter, yeah. uh, but he's just become a, a dad again for the, right. for the third time, right. fourth time actually. Right. And suddenly, and he knows he's going to, uh, you know, he's he's going to die in that moment. Yeah. As as an actor, that must have been an incredible moment to play. It was it was hugely um, visceral, obviously, and hugely emotional because you're dealing with the very thing that is. Emily and I's worst nightmare. I remember Emily saying this is the scariest part she's ever played because normally you have to pretend the horrors that you're going through. And this is actually what she worries about every night. Certainly not creatures coming to take our kids, but the idea of not being able to protect your kids in every instance, whether however great or however small. And I think that this moment, you know, it was all about to me, the setups and payoffs throughout the whole movie. So as much as I love that scene in and of itself, that was really one of the things that I spent the most time on in the rewrite getting to and making sure that everything was lining up so that you would really feel that there was no other option because I didn't want it to feel cheap. I didn't want him to just stand up and do something for a movie moment. And you're like, nah, I don't really know why he did that <clears throat> to have Emily say, you have to protect them. Yeah. And the way she says it is protect them at all costs. Yeah. So he's charged with a responsibility that is, basically impossible in this situation. Um, And then the idea that he's hit by a creature was a very last minute decision that I made because uh, sacrificing himself was sort of always the plan. But I think until he was injured beyond repair, uh, the the scene just didn't feel quite right. And the fact that his kids thought he was already dead and then he comes up and does it again. All those little mechanics really helped make the scene Mm. as as good as it was. And again, those children are just so unbelievably good. I mean, I could have come up in a clown suit and her reaction to me would have made it just as much, just as emotional. She's just so good. Did you try that at any point? I should have. I should have really leaned into the it of it all a lot more throughout the whole process. <laughs> but again, it pays off. You talk about setup, uh, setup and payoffs. It pays off from the uh, the sequence where, and I don't know whether you can clarify this, uh, where you stumble upon that old guy in the yeah. woods. Exactly. And you his, nailed it, yeah. Yeah, his wife, uh, I presume is his wife, yep. has, has died. Uh my wife and I had a bit of discussion about this. We, I came from a couple. I came from a different direction. I thought he had snapped and just killed her. Mm. She thought it was a murder-suicide pact. Interesting. Uh, what's, what's your take on that? Well, my take on it was that the house that the boy sees is their house. Um, and it was really one of those moments where, again, to live silently was impossible. And also for them to be the only people on earth would have been impossible. Yeah. So I loved seeing just a glimpse into how someone else is living through this. And very clearly from the way he looks he doesn't have an infrastructure like the father has. They're very lucky to have the father being as fastidious as he is about, Mm. you know, protecting them. But also the fact that they can speak sign, this guy most likely couldn't. They had a reason for that. So they had a a couple legs up there. What this was to me was they probably had a 
much, much, much smaller, a microcosm of a, of a safety routine mm -hmm. and that the, the woman had gone out to forage for some, some version of food and then ended up making a noise and being killed. And so he arrived and found her dead. Mm -hmm. And once he did that, there was no other reason to live. And I also thought the, I thought a lot about the idea of, you know, they talk about the greatest generation and, mm. That if you live this long and have seen so much, what is your reward for living through that? And I thought, what a horrible feeling it would be to live that long mm. and then have this be your final sort oh of God. moment, you know? So yeah. the reason why the scream came up was that idea of it's not just that he wants to die because she's gone. It's this idea of I, I can't process this anymore of how horrible this is to me and anyone who's going to survive. No one can survive through this mentally, let alone physically. And mm. so he decides to do that. So that was my that's that's what we were going for okay. on that thing. So we were both wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're both morons is what the answer is. Um, no, and also, listen, they, I'm sure the studio always saw this as a potential, um, you know, you know, whether it's a sequel or prequel or something like that. Yeah. They wanted to potentially build a world. And without going into that whole thing of I never thought like, oh, this would be a sequel. Of course, I wouldn't think that. I was so wanting to make this specific. But what I did love is that other people have to deal with this. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I love that idea of just seeing that window, like I was saying. So it was one of those things of, of if if these people are living through it poorly, are there yeah. other people living through it well? Is yeah. there some other way to survive? It's interesting. Yeah, other people in tower blocks, other people in submarines. How, exactly. how, how do you deal Ooh, with this stuff? Submarine. You know, submarine, there you go. <laughs> quiet place too, even quiet. <laughs> run silent, run deep, a quiet place too. <laughs> Make it happen, John. Make it happen. Um, perhaps you could be your own twin brother. I love it. I love it. Or a ghost. It's, it's I could just go come back as a ghost. ghost. Why not? Why not? Why, or in a clown suit. Uh, and <laughs> Man, I really should have shot the clown take. <laughs> um, but there is a fastidiousness uh, to your work, not just as a character in this movie, John, but as a director as well. Uh, Thank I'm you. talking about the nail yeah. sequence. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, because we know what's going to happen. Probably... 15, 20 minutes before yeah. it happens. Uh, can you talk about that decision uh, to, as a writer, first of all, where the nail came from and, and as a director to focus on it? And was Emily always going to be the one to step on the nail? Yes. Yes to everything. Um, I believe the nail certainly was... I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Beckham Woods had that in their original draft. That was one okay. of those unbelievable set pieces that I immediately adhered to. I'm pretty sure about that. And then sort of how we, again, taking what they had and trying to make it more about the family was how it was going to happen and the timing of what was happening. So I had her breaking her water a little at the, just before that. And you can, you can, you can front load that nail thing, which I don't know how much front loading it needed, but I just thought, <laughs> well, let's go all the way and make people vomit when it happens. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that to me is just pure, the the beauty of what Hitchcock used to do, you know, what I mean, he oh, yeah. would he would set up tension and suspense better than anyone. I remember it was Chris McQuarrie who said he thinks that scene would would have been a perfect Hitchcock moment. And what he said was, uh, it, "There's many famous quotes of Hitchcock, and, and I'm going to paraphrase and butcher this, but I remember Chris McQuarrie telling me um, his favorite Hitchcock quote that applies to this movie when he read the script was, "When you have an audience." 
when, when you have an audience screaming their head off, grab them by the neck and don't let go. And that was like <laughs> the, the, the Hitchcock motto. And I was like, that's amazing. Instead of, he said, most movies you want to let a little tension release and then yeah. come back to it and then let your audience go. And he was like, no, no, no. Hitchcock's whole thing was just like, grab them and never let them go. And I thought that's so great. Um, yeah. and that's sort of what the nail is. The other thing that was great about the nail and someone actually just brought it up to me in one of these interviews that I didn't even think of, which is horror and comedy are actually very similarly related oh, yeah, because yeah. it is complete timing. Same right? beats. I mean, I was saying to, to, to him that, you know, we were taking out one and two frames by the end of it for some of these scares and two frames you would think makes no difference at all. It makes a huge difference. There's this tiny bit of air where all of a sudden it's not scary. Yeah. Um, and so it almost, you have to land it perfectly. And on that nail, I remember in the script, just setting it up like dominoes was if I, I believe I wanted it to go as long as I could to make it excruciating. But I mm -hmm. think if it had gone five more minutes, people would have hated it. That's my theory. <laughs> I really do. Because I think there is a, there's a threshold that people can take, you know? And I think yeah. that if you go longer, people just think it's ridiculous that someone hasn't done it. But yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if it was the last shot of the movie, it would be even better. <laughs> With the nail just leaping out at you. Yeah, exactly. The nail has eyes and just jumps out and... <laughs> <laughs> and catches a ride in the submarine <laughs> exactly with the clown this is the, the by the way the sequel clown. is feeling really I'm, good i'm really liking it i think this is good uh if i could co-executive produce in this oh one my I God. Think that are you kidding you're directing <laughs> it will be terrible yeah Can i just uh, i'll just say that up front it will be awful but we'll have fun it. yeah it'll, it'll be, be great um the uh here night Mm -hmm. And the idea of, of sound being used as a uh, a weapon, as a yeah. breakthrough, yeah. was that uh, always in the script? Was that something you brought to it? They had um, a sound uh, defeating the creatures at the end of the, the movie. Was and it farting? It was farting. Yeah, yeah. it was a, the, the creatures. Uh, it was just an ambiguous thing of whether the creatures were dying from the smell or the sound. <laughs> and I thought we had to be more specific about it. Um, no, they had a, they had a uh, an interesting idea of a, a, a noise that, that was made to kill the creatures. And I just thought that was one of the things that I meant about the rewrite, trying to hook everything back to the family. I think that it, the, the thing that felt really good about doing this movie for me was because we had just had our second daughter when I read this script, I mm. thought I'm going to lean in every piece of my DNA is about family right now. So let's, let's wrap it all in. And I think that the hearing aid was twofold for me. I needed something that the father did to be the thing that defeated the creatures so that there was a, a call back to that. But also I needed it to be, I loved the idea and I was really scared to be able to pull it off. I needed the girl who thought she was the black sheep and the reason for all the horror to be the reason they survived. I needed her biggest weakness to be her superpower. I love those stories and mm -hmm. I love the idea of her not realizing it till the end. So those things were, it was, it was pretty complicated to get to the end, but once it started to show itself, you realized I, m one of my favorite shots in the movie is when she picks up all the hearing aids and she still hasn't put it together yeah. and she just realizes how much work her dad put into her life. Yeah. And she just thought her dad had given up on her and truly he's, she's probably the person he paid attention to the most. Mm. So I love that emotional string, but then having her realize that what makes her different is what makes her, you know, um, mm. uh, the, the the hero of the movie was was huge to me. Uh, about seventy five different questions and about seventy five seconds wish to ask. Yeah, yeah so, one one a second. Here we go. Uh, Boom. Here you we already go. wasted three. Uh, so in terms of setting up the world and setting up the creatures, uh, you leave it open to people's uh, imaginations. I mm -hmm. guess uh, they could be demons, they could be aliens, they could be just creatures that are out for a night out and yep. things got out. Just of a night out. It's just a <laughs> yeah. Tuesday. It just it just it just went weird. Uh, 
are you prepared to state what they are? And yeah, they absolutely. They, they are absolutely aliens. They're from another planet. The cool thing to me was where I developed the idea of them and, and what I wanted them to look like was every alien movie I had watched, or most, I should say, most movies are about takeovers, you know, agendas. They're, they're a thinking uh, alien creature. And for me, this idea of a predator, this idea of a parasite, this idea of something that is introduced into an ecosystem. One of my favorite movies I love to watch is Rock and Rolla, and they tell that whole story about the, <laughs> the, the crawfish and the in the Thames and things. That's what I mean is that introduction of something that can't be held back. Yeah, you know, I remember a terrible joke that I said was like it would be it's it's, it's disgusting and disturbing, but it's true. It's like it would be like releasing wolves into a daycare center. Like there's just yeah. no. There's no, uh, that's how the world responds yeah, is they just get uh, beaten up. But anyway, the idea behind all that is they're definitely aliens and they're an evolutionary perfect machine. So yeah. the idea is if they grew up on a planet that had no humans, then they would just, and no light, then they don't need eyes. They can only uh, hunt by sound. They also develop a way to protect themselves from everything else. So that's why they're bulletproof and all these things. I had to make it make sense. I needed the rules of the monster to adhere as tightly to the rules of the family. The family, we had set up all these incredible rules. I needed the monster to not just be convenient. Hmm. And the other idea was it's also the reason why they were able to survive a meteorite, sort of the explosion of their planet, and then survive on these meteorites because they're, they've evolved to be bulletproof. They've evolved to be, you know, um, until they open themselves to be vulnerable, they're, they're completely invulnerable. So it was all these little ideas that we thought about and thought about and thought about. And hmm. between my production designer and the insane team at ilm i just had the best time of my life with those people oh, oh my god the great movie monsters oh my god Fantastic. thank you yeah i'm talking about ilm oh damn damn <laughs> those guys are monsters <laughs> <laughs> just ridiculous um but you so you worked out really fastidiously the 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 backstory of the creatures because we start on day 89 and things have already gone to shit by then yep. so i i get the impression that you worked out so by day 30 everything's gone to pot this family knows no, exactly right so that that horrible you know probably terrible metaphor of a wolves in a daycare center is like it, it happens so fast there is no I wanted to break all the rules or the conventions that I had seen in, in alien movies, which is like a speech from the president and, you know, uh, people deciding how to survive. There was no deciding. It just happened so fast mm. that uh, you you either survived or you didn't. And so it puts these people in a very tense place. And the other thing that was great about it is not giving away too much information. I remember one of the best bits of advice was weirdly from a, a marketing guy at a company said the biggest misconception in Hollywood is that audiences are stupid. They are not stupid and mm. they want to be challenged and they want to figure things out for themselves. So I really banked on that in this one and thought, if I can allow the audience to not know more information than the family, because the family has no idea what's going on. It yeah, happens yeah, yeah. so fast that they're trying to figure it out too. It really bonds the audience to the family in an added beneficial way. And so that's that's really where it all came from. The, there, you say you're not a horror guy. Yep. I am uh, now. Are you, you kidding? Are now. I was it's, late to the party, but I'm staying. It's good shit. <laughs> it's great. You check the stuff out. It's really good. Uh, there's a moment right at the beginning where they come out of the, uh, the, the uh, I think it's a drugstore, and a newspaper flaps over and it has its sound on the front mm -hmm. cover. Uh, there's a moment in George Romero's Day of the Dead where something like that happens as well, uh, where it's, it's, a newspaper flaps over and it says, the dead walk. Oh, right. Was, was that, uh, I guess, not an intentional reference? or was that? Just you know what's so funny is it, it, it wasn't an intentional reference. I was actually going the other probably less exciting way, which is I am weirdly fascinated by New York Post headlines. <laughs> and when everyone's trying to discuss these you know, big 
political agendas. They just give it to you straight. And so I love that all the other um, newspapers are saying death tolls and this. And the New York Post is like, well, we're going to die anyway. We'll just give you the answer. It's sound. Stop making sound. <laughs> and the cool thing was the New York Post um, wasn't going to okay any of the, you know, understandably, they didn't know yeah. what the movie was going to turn out to be. So they weren't going to okay any of the covers. And on that one, this is an amazing compliment. The editor of the New York Post said, well, that's actually what we would have written. So, And I was like, that's great. That's perfect. So, Do you know over here, sound means good? Really? Yeah. You know, oh, it's sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's nice. So maybe we're, we're, we're about to die. But you know what? It's fine. It's sound. It's good. Uh, and then the very last thing is I, I, I'm fascinated by how directors end movies. You ended on a great shot of Emily Cock and that shotgun. Yeah. Uh, can you talk very quickly about your... Absolutely. I got to say that was... Um, that was an idea that the producer and I were talking about and the producer just said, I don't know how to make it work, but what if she cocked the gun at the end and we, or no, sorry. What if she shot the creature at the end? That's what he said. And I said, that seems to me to be a cheap ending. If that's the last thing we see, it's mm. like you're giving, you're giving away the, the end. There's no, we didn't earn that. You know what I mean? So people are like, that's it. We spent all this time with her and then she just shot it. Um, so I thought, what if she shot it and you weren't sure that she had enough bullets for the rest of the movie? And that idea of <laughs> I can pick a fight, but can I end one? Yeah. Was, was sort of where I came up with the idea. And then I, when I had the idea of cocking it, it was one of those things where it really helps to be living with your leading lady. Because <laughs> in my head, I just thought there's few people who can end a movie like that, like Emily. And when I turned to her, I said, so, you know, Drew had this, the producer had this idea to shoot the alien. She was like, yeah, let me think about that. So I process things immediately as like, yes, let's go. And I pitch things very fast. And she's like, let me take my time. Hold on a second. <laughs> and it was, I think it was one of the only things, one of the only ideas she didn't need time to process. I said, I'm going to end the movie. It's going to go black after you cock the gun. And she was like, yes. And so I had an immediate <laughs> feedback test audience. And I thought, all right, that's how I'm ending my movie then. Oh, what a great moment to end on. Uh, John Krasinski, uh, Ryan. Writer, co-executive producer, co-director, and star in a ghost clown suit of Run Silent, Run Deep, A Quiet Place to Even Quieter. I can't wait. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, Cheers. man. This was great. Really great. good. Thank you. Okay, so that was uh, John Krasinski. Uh, now we're going to get into the film itself. And and for me, this is my film of the year, hands down. I, I Watching this movie, I had one of those experiences that only happens once in a blue moon for me, where... It, it felt almost levitational It because it, it was so good. It was so well made. It was so assured. It's one of those films where you're watching it going, from frame one, I was tense. I was I, I went to see it with my wife, drinking game, and uh, and from minute one, we were just grabbing each other, uh, and not in a sex way. And I was just desperately hoping that it would just sustain that tension and it wouldn't, it, it would stick the landing and it, and it wouldn't mess up. Are we still and talking it, about the grabbing? <laughs> Uh, we're still, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. Uh, but the, the, the film, um, um, what's it called? A Quiet Place. Yes. Do you guys, did you guys have the same feeling? Were you on this movie? Love, 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 loved it. Uh, obviously, I didn't see it before it came out, as everyone who listens to the podcast is well aware of. But I did go and see it just after we recorded last week's podcast uh, with a bunch of, frankly, strange single men sitting in the back. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was a middle-of-the-day screening. Uh, and yet, yes, oh, my God, it's so good. The only thing is about this film, and it's fantastic on every level, but it kind of brings into focus the problem with going to the cinema, and that's people making sounds. <laughs> and, you know, generally it's irritating when people breathe, move, rustle, you know, stretch, eat, drink, all that sort of stuff. But yeah. in this film, you hear everything. And everyone becomes really self-conscious. And you become very self-conscious. Am I rustling too loudly? Am I moving? Is this chair creaking? Is my ice clinking? You know, things like that. Yeah. But, it, I mean, the sound is so powerful in this film that you can't have any sound at all anywhere in the cinema. 
It's very stressful. Yeah, adds I, to it though. No, I absolutely, I absolutely got that when I when I washed it. I was eating a, a massive bag of crisps. <laughs> You're that I had, guy. I had, uh, but I didn't, I didn't realize. You know, I didn't realize going in. If, you know, normal film, you can get away with eating crisps. Mm. And there were only about fifteen people on my screen, and I was eating crisps. And about ten minutes in, I, I went, well, I can't eat the crisps anymore. I can't, I can't even but go near them. Did you find the silence brought you out of the film, or made you more a part of the film? Because I think, like the characters, you are desperately trying not to make noise. Mm. It makes you very self-conscious, unless you're a selfish twat. And you just don't give a shit. But I have read many reports of, of screens of this film being ruined by mm. selfish twats. But it could be very easily ruined. Like, there was a guy eating sweets a couple of rows back, and it was bothering me. I mean, he'd stop after a while, but mm. it, it, that I found very distracting. But I think, I think you're right. I think the self-consciousness is really interesting. It made me really aware of how kind of weird going to the cinema is. So I was sat in a screening... It's obviously, you realise that the silence isn't a little motif that's going to last a few scenes. It's going to last a long time before you get any dialogue whatsoever. Um, And you're suddenly really conscious that you're sat in a dark room with loads of strangers watching some... It just, it felt really weird. And so initially it took me out of the film because I became super self-conscious of my surroundings. The person next to me was breathing. I started to get really irritated. (laughs) But then, to your point... The film is so remarkable from the very first scene and obviously, you know, something very traumatic happens very quickly. And so you're gripped immediately and what that means is I then, it actually sucked me into the film. Once I'd got over my own self-consciousness and I couldn't help it because the story just pulls you in. There's no kind of, it hits the ground running immediately. Yeah. Um, and so, actually, it made me feel like complicit in the film because, as you say, you're kind of conscious of nobody making a noise either on or off screen. It's kind of a weird communal experience. I, th- I think it makes you realise how weird, like, group silence is. Mm. How often are you in a room full of people where no one is making any noise whatsoever and everyone's trying to be as quiet? All as the possible? time when Chris is trying to be funny. <laughs> the Empire Office every day. Yeah. Um, but as we were saying in the office before we came across, even though it's a film that you're going to go in and be like, please let nobody be munching popcorn or that kind of thing, it is still a film that you want to see with other people in the room, as long as they're all like-minded people who mm. will keep quiet, because there is something about, especially horror films, Yeah, um, we spoke about this on the podcast the other week, like seeing horror films with a group of other people where you're all having that shared experience mm. often really adds to the film. Uh, it was it was a strange screening there where I thought, I, I really want to see this with a full uh, room of people mm. who buy into that silence, but then also buy into the, the, the tension and the way that the film releases that tension. In other words, I want to see it with a room full of people who are going to be screaming and then laughing at the yeah. release, uh, a release of tension. That didn't happen in my screening. Instead, as I said in the podcast last week, it was really, really quiet uh, to the point where I felt comfortable enough to like... I, it wasn't even a conscious thing where I was speaking back to the screen. I was doing that thing. I was going, don't, don't, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Don't, don't do that. No, no, no. Oh, Jesus, no. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> I became aware that I was doing that. But it, it, as Krasinski said in the interview, it, it's fascinating to see how it, it almost educates people. And there will always be people who are resistant to it, but it educates people how to watch the film and how to fall mm. into line with the rhythms of the film. Afterwards, over the last week or so since I saw it with my wife, we have been walking around our flat going, well, that noise. That, okay, don't make that, that noise. Mm. We'd be dead now. Oh, okay, let's go in that, that room. Oh, the door opens. Oh, we'd be dead now. It's it's kind of weird how the, it, the film has had an afterlife in that way, in my mind. If you make the simplest, smallest noise now, I'm very, very aware of how much noise I make on a daily basis when I'm trying to be funny in the office, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about... So I've spent a lot of time thinking about... 
some of the kind of logic flaws in the sound bits right in All terms right, go of go on hit us with sorry, it sorry i've been like obsessing about this because i kind of get the whole the sound needs to be bigger than the sound you're experiencing so nature you can go they can go and stand in the waterfall and they can talk and they can scream and it's the first time obviously his son has screamed in a long time because that sound the sound of the waterfall is bigger than the sound that they're and your immediate thought is, why didn't you build your house next to the why waterfall? Why don't you live next to the waterfall? <laughs> yeah. Why don't you live somewhere? You're literally living... Sorry, I'm already shouting. But why are you literally living in the middle of the woods <laughs> yeah. where there is no sound ever? Nature is never going to be louder than you are. And I, and I know this isn't really the point of the film, but, <laughs> but this kind of... I had to really let this go when I was watching the movie because I was like, the waterfall scene. I was like, hang on, hang on. I think you'll find that if that was the case, then I would just build my house by, the, by some really... Or by the sea. Or somewhere where nature will be really dead Mm. noisy. So I I kind of struggled with that, which I know isn't kind of the point, but it is the point of a spoiler special, right? Is to try and work out these... Yeah, inconsistencies yeah. one may I mean say. it wouldn't have been as exciting a film if they just carried on their lives as normal because <laughs> they were next to a waterfall and nothing had happened for 90 minutes I understand that and I understand that there are bits there are bits deliberately left untold somebody was saying to me oh I found it really irritating that you didn't actually learn much about the creatures so, oh, that was the best thing. so the fact that you don't know how they got to earth you don't yeah. know where they came from we presume they're aliens but yeah. are they aliens um, you, you only understand really their sense of hearing and how it differs from humans when they that amazing shot where you see the ear kind of pulsating yeah, yeah. and but I didn't mind that I mean I actually one of the things and I loved loved this film but one of the things I struggled with a little bit was the amount of exposition that was done because of the silence through some of the sets so you had you know we're going to go downstairs and in the bunker there is a wall covered in newspaper cuttings and one of the headlines says it's sound so you go it's sound. Yeah. And, and Krasinski's numbers. written rhetorical questions Rhetoric- on a whiteboard. whiteboard. <laughs> and I understand the device. I understand the, the why that's there from a narrative perspective, but I struggled with that a little bit. I did think the only clunky bits, and I think this is on a filmmaking level, one of the most sophisticated things I've seen in a long time. Yeah. But I do think there was some of the exposition that had to be done arguably by that was a little bit jarring for me. I think because so much of it is told situationally mm. that like you get so much info- information from how the characters act and how they interact with each other and how they interact with the world that when there are those extra signposts, you just think, I don't need it. I've got that it's sound from the fact that they are all like freaking out whenever anyone's about to make a noise. Mm. So I think that's why those moments stood out further. I, I love that the, that the silence of the film accentuates literally everything else mm. and not even like not even just accentuating the sounds that are made accentuating what you see on the screen and what you don't see mm. and i think that comes across like you were saying when you see that big big kind of wall that he's got with all the yeah. cuttings mm. and things you think so much has been told to me in, in a really really clever way that when there are are those little moments of like just in case you didn't get it here you go yeah. and you think i'm already up to speed no, I, I think that was all very nicely filled in. I thought it was very deftly filled in. I think it also allows you enough room to to fill in your own alien attacks. They are aliens, as Krasinski confirmed. They're not... Because the movie does, there's a newspaper cutting at one point where it calls them angels, and you could you could mount that reading of it where it's a post-apocalyptic thing, it's post-rapture, mm. you know, it's, it's the end of the world, or demons or whatever, or maybe angels, who knows. Uh, or there's also the chance that they might be underground creatures that have evolved and have come up, as in the uh, Tim Lebin novel, The Silence, to which this movie has been compared. We might get into that later on. But it also gives you enough time to think, OK, we start on day 89, and by that point, things have clearly gone to pot. But this family have had enough time to see what's happening the world has had enough time to at least get to newspaper headlines and to you know produce some stories and to do some sort of research, and they know 
basic things about these monsters. So I was totally okay with that. And also in terms of his his whiteboard, uh, there's a very crucial bit of information, which is three creatures in the area. Yeah. And so you're immediately going, okay, once you've killed one creature, go, oh, shit, well, there's still two to go. Also, is that three it then? And how confined is it? It said it in the area, on the thing. It said how yeah. many in the area. The area. Uh, although, given that if there's only three of them, their response time was extraordinary. Look how fast they are. <laughs> They're dead fast. Yeah, they are very, very fast. Um, speaking of, of, of just like, so they've got a little house, this idyllic house on a farm. Could I give a big shout out to Rustic Home Furnishings? That house was amazing. <laughs> My house doesn't look that good, and I don't live in the apocalypse. Uh, also, frankly, they turned out quite well in chunky knitwear. So uh, I thought, I thought, you know, props to that. You know, I could live in that dystopia. Where it's all, you know, sort of reclaimed teak furniture and hand-finished. Oh, it's yeah, good. And no one trying to talk to you. And yeah. 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 This is heaven. your YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Except you couldn't watch TV. But you could, I guess, with headphones, with headphones on. Yeah, you'd, the, be, you'd be all right. There is an element of the of idyll and r- not ro- romance is the wrong word, but it's interesting because it's not all bleak, horrific kind of, as you say, a post-apocalyptic world where it's... And I think that stops it being a purely um, survival film. I think it makes it a really human drama. So I think... As Ben was saying, the character work done by the silence is is incredible. The character work done by them physical, the physicality of them is incredible. But you know, there's that scene where they dance together and they have shared mm. the iPod. If and that, I was in tears at that scene. That scene really moved you because you forget. And I think sometimes in survival films, I think this is what he did amazingly. He didn't forget the humanity and the heart at the centre of this family, no matter what they go through that fundamentally they are people who love each other and are normal people trying to survive in extraordinary circumstances and not just stay alive but keep their bond and stay in love and and remember what kind of joins them together. And I found that incredibly moving. Yeah, there's another version of this movie that's about subverting the family unit and Mm. it's, you know, one of them would turn out to be bad in some way. He'd turn out to have some horrible foibles. And it doesn't do that. This film is so incredibly wholehearted and so incredibly earnest. And it gains so much as well, I think, from the fact that, you know, not not everyone's going to know that John Krasinski and Emily Blunt are married in real life. But for those who do, I think scenes, especially like the Heart of Gold scene, yeah. really do bring on it. There's an extra layer there. There's an extra layer of emotional connectivity. Uh, I absolutely, I absolutely love that. And I love the fact that they're not, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, you saw it most recently, mm-hmm. they're named in the end credits but they're not named in the film. They don't refer to each other as, uh, I think it's, he's called Lee. Lee and, she's Lee and Evelyn. Evelyn. Mm. And Evelyn. I don't think, yeah. yeah, I don't think they ever like say that. Yeah. Especially, I guess they can't really, they can't sign that easily yeah. to each other, what each other's yeah. names and mm. things are. There's no function for them to have to say yeah. each other's names through whatever. But despite that, and despite the lack of backstory and despite the lack of oh do you remember when we first met 10 years ago and all that I don't know why she's from Cornwall but (laughs) (laughs) do you remember when we met first 10 years ago John 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 Krasinski um you get to know these characters you get to care for them right from the off a part of that I think is because you're plunged into possibly the worst thing that parents can go through mm-hmm. uh, that so many horror films as I said to Krasinski don't look now as one of them you know the loss of a child I think from that point on another criticism I've seen is the, the fact that they choose to have another baby mm. But I'm not so sure it's a choice. I was going to say, yeah. I don't imagine there are a lot of birth control options in the apocalypse, so... But I think there's also a very human need often in times of great grief and in times of of great loss is to 
do something life affirming, and there's nothing arguably more life affirming than than bringing new life in, however kind of perilous that and life. Fair play is. to them for embracing the logistics, like the soundproof a room. They work out what they're going to do with a little oxygen mask. That's and stuff. incredible. That's just genius because mm. baby's not known for their ability to be quiet. Um, yeah, I thought but that, that was very well. But the stuff that pre- and that pregnancy did so in terms of storytelling, mm. it allowed you to go into that incredible detail of when you first see the oxygen mask and you're trying to work out what it's for, and then and the baby's caught, and then the moment he puts the lid on it which makes it look like a coffin almost mm. because it's the way to soundproof that is so there was those moments in the film which are so detailed but are so powerful and that's what makes this film and makes it so much more than any kind of genre i think it can be really ascribed to and it's a horror it's a thrill that the action scenes are incredible but i think it's those moments where which really take your breath away when you see it for the first time I like the, uh, there were little touches in this that I really enjoyed. Just the the system they had with the bulbs. The way it all just looks like beautiful fairy lights. And you just think, oh, that's really lovely. I should do that with my house. And then, of course, you realise it's a warning system and all the bulbs go red when yeah. shit's hitting the fan. Although I, I, in my head, I couldn't work out, were those bulbs, uh, there are aliens about to kill us, or were they, I'm going into labour bulbs? Like, which were they? <laughs> Going both, in, uh, yeah, but I thought it was, yeah, because it's, I'm going into labour, therefore you need to distract the... Beast, because yeah. I'm going to be making noise because I'm a woman in labour. Yeah. Um, that's the system. That they was a, that was very very clever. The the bit with the sack and the nail caused me more anxiety than I can think of I, than any other film I think ever. Just because you were waiting for a good twenty minutes, you knew that was coming, and you were waiting for the nail. It's one of the best uh, examples of the bomb under the yeah. table I've seen. Check off a nail, long time. <laughs> Check off nail, yeah. And they kept it there as well. No oh, one takes a nail. No, so whenever no. anyone is walking on their stairs, you're going, like, please, ooh, don't, please ooh, don't, please ooh. don't, please don't. Like, not don't mind the fact they could get eviscerated at any minute. They might tread on a nail. <laughs> <laughs> John McClane and Bear Feed, you're gonna break you're gonna shoot the glass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bend the nail. And when she finally does it, just she acts that so well when she drops it, just the expression on her face. Yeah. That whole sequence to go from that moment on where she stands in the nail and breaks the photo frame. Yeah. And and two of them come at that point, isn't it? Mm. Two yeah. two of the two of the nasty space beasties, the bastards I'll call them. Uh, <laughs> they they turn up. That whole sequence is as good a sustained set piece uh, right up until the moment where she has uh, her bloody hand yeah. appears behind Krasinski. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely extraordinary. The moment she climbs in the bath and they're coming up behind her and she's <laughs> desperately trying not to scream. Oh, my God. It's incredible. It's, the tension is extraordinary. Genuinely, this is among the scariest films I've ever seen. But in, in a different way, it's just, it's just, as you said, sustained tension all the way mm. through. It's incredibly hard to bring your heart rate down during that film. Just It, it becomes exhausting after a while, but also incredibly compelling. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. From frame one. From frame one, yeah. he is fantastic at establishing this, this the, the quietness of the soundscape. Uh, it is beautifully shot. But you have this moment where they're going through the, uh, the drugstore looking for... You know, just jars of of tablets, of yeah. little little bottles of tablets, and you realise that suddenly oh, they can't even touch yeah. that. And that whole sequence with the with the, the little space shuttle and it falling and someone catching it and going, yeah. "Oh my god, don't make any noise." Although it keeps making you making you wait. You know, you kind of know as an audience member going in that with this being the setup, and you, most audiences, I guess, will probably know that what the general premise is. You go in going. Okay, someone's going to make a noise at some point, and it keeps teasing you for what that noise oh, is yeah. going to be. And I love that it kept like drawing that further and further out. 
Although I'd just like to put out a great big fuck you to the marketing department for ruining the space shuttle sequence by putting it in the trailer, which I thought was deeply unnecessary. Oh, did they? Uh, yeah, that's in the trailer. So you know what's going to happen. The second you see that space shuttle, you know that that sequence is imminent. And I thought that's such a shame because that would have been so powerful if it had come out of nowhere. Yeah, I skipped the trailer deliberately and I'm so glad I did because I didn't realise mm. that was in there until you told me. And that, I have to say, it's so shocking when it happens. And I deliberately avoided everything, bar the Krasinski um, amazing feature he wrote for Empire, um, (laughs) which he wrote about um, the whole process of making this film, how Emily came to be on board. And after I read that, I was like, that's all I'm going to read. I want to save myself for whatever I then go and experience in the cinema. That moment when you you realise what's going to happen when he's put the batteries back in and they're walking down the train tracks and you know exactly what's about to happen... I found that whole sequence so traumatic to watch and and the violence it's it's oh. it's fast but it's incredibly violent and you see their reactions as parents and it's her reaction actually because she pauses first realizing and, and Krasinski does and he starts to t- he turns what feels like yeah. so, slowly, so slowly and you're and you know what it's about to unfold and to do that within the first mm. what four or five minutes of the film yeah and I'm so glad I experienced it completely but pure that yeah. does so much work in terms of the narrative for setting their state of mind for showing how sort of like you know fragile their existence is and also it shows you right from the get that they're not messing about that this yeah. is not you know Anything could literally happen to these characters. They've ju- the worst thing that could possibly happen happens in the prologue, and what that it- they don't really have time to get away either. Yeah. it's not like that happens and they're like everyone run, and then there's yeah. a bit of a chase. And there is happens. no running. Like within a couple of seconds of, yeah. of that noise. Well, the man in the woods. Can we talk about the man in the woods? Which it just <laughs> not not any old man in the woods. The man in the woods in this film, which yeah. is like if you think about it, the man in the woods is such a trope of, of horror, right? So think about all of those cabin based stabby horror films. There's always an old man in the woods who's going to kill you. It's that it's that spectre, and you see him, and your brain immediately goes there. He's like the dodgy old man in the woods, and then you see the body of his wife at his feet, and you realise that she's been killed. And he's and a mixture, presumably, of grief and not wanting to live without her. In that moment, he makes the decision yeah. to scream to be a massive bell end and nearly kill a child. But, but yeah, but obviously he did, he hadn't. Well, he had seen them, hadn't he? Yes. So he, he made a bad decision. Yeah, he was a bit <laughs> but, that, yeah. but that aside, and that again, that just you know the indiscriminate nature of it, the the fact that you can't get away, the fact that as soon as that noise. Is made you have committed suicide essentially mm. because there is no there is nowhere to go. Yeah, you have you have three options at that point. You just stand, you get killed, or you get somewhere else and try to be as quiet as you possible yeah. as possible and hope they don't uh, detect you, or you somehow make a distracting noise and and get them as far away from you as you possibly can. But that's an amazing that's an amazing credentials establisher uh, in terms of how fast these things mm. are. And the, the movie keeps them in the shadows for the longest time and you don't know what they are. And when they're revealed, for me, they're genuinely a great movie monster. The design is fantastic. They're really yes. creepy and otherworldly. They've got massive ears. Uh, <laughs> they're a bit pumpkin head slash Cloverfield monster, Very aren't they? Cloverfield, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Mm. But there's a bit of the alien in there as well. There's, a, there's, there's that sequence where uh, Emily Blunt is in the, 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 the room and the water is rising and she realises there's one in there with her, uh, which that is That was like the scariest moment. And, and it, it rises it just, from the water. Yeah. It's like the alien yeah. coming yeah. to take Newt from aliens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. And all this from a guy who wasn't a horror bloke. Uh, and maybe that helped. Maybe that meant he I had think it's really interesting that, obviously, he is most well-known for being Jim from The Office, who is... I mean, everyone in that show gets has their own kind of form of comedy. He is one of the most beloved and, and funniest characters in that but never really for speaking. All of his comedy comes from silence and timing mm. and 
looking at the camera and I, I think there is something in that being his kind of the the form of comedy that he honed over those years on that show and then going and doing something like something like this where it's it's not about the words it's about the placement of the camera and how the characters interact with each other and with the camera um that's probably a bit wanky but i, I thought there was like a bit of a, a connection there I, I really liked him in 13 Hours, actually. That was when yeah. I first... Because I've never really watched The American Office, but that's where I first took note of him. I thought he was great in that. But, you know, didn't he also... He either... Help me out here, Chris. He either um, was a producer or a writer on Manchester by the Sea. Um, producer, yeah. Producer. And, you know, and that... I remember he came to a London screening I went to and I was like... Um, it's, it's that moment where you kind of in your head he's one thing and, and after that I was kind of like this is this is really interesting he's clearly you know wanting to do something it's why we actually asked him to write the piece for Empire because we were fascinated about how this guy who is known as this thing would possibly do this and it's his third feature but the first two you know I'd have struggled to name before googling them <laughs> let's be honest um, and it's remarkable and that's what's remarkable about it really because he's made a film and I think there's something interesting in what horror allows you to do as a genre um, as a filmmaker and the risks it allows you to take and the places it allows you to go mm -hmm. you know Jordan Peele doing Get Out is a, just one of many yeah. recent examples um, but I think the, the confidence and you touched on it earlier the confidence he shows as a filmmaker in this film the way he holds his nerve and expects the audience to hold their nerve along with him he has brass balls as a filmmaker to make this film and you can feel that confidence and the way you know the, the the way he has to use the language of filmmaking to fill real language on the screen, I think, is such a huge feat. Um, which is what's so impressive about about him, particularly. I think it's, it's beautifully shot, and uh, we should give a shout out to the uh, the DP mm. uh, Charlotte Bruce Christensen because so many of the reveals are just beautiful. The reveal of the the youngest kid playing the uh, the space shuttle and putting the batteries in the space shuttle uh, because the camera is tight in on mm -hmm. the daughter. And then it just fears a little to the left, I think, and just reveals that the, you can see the lights of the, because obviously she's deaf, she can't hear it. You see the lights and, then she, and it plays off her reaction to her parents looking at looking at the kid in horror going, oh, my God, uh, that is just beautifully shot. And there's many, many examples like that throughout the rest of the film. It's, it's gloriously uh, photographed. I think matter respect for the lack of repetition in the set pieces in this film like it's it's a, like you want to have a fairly they have a fairly simple horror set up these creatures they can hear you can't make noise you could have easily gone into seeing the set, same set piece with a slight twist on it again and again but the variance in this is extraordinary you know whether you've got the grain silo or the bit in the water you know or the bit where he sees this and the bit in the forest and the bit with the car like they're all very different they feel distinct at no point do you think oh I've seen this already do you mean oh I'm bored now this is the same thing again there's so much variety and texture to it I have to say, I think the grain silo was one of my favourite moments in it because one thing that I think the film does really well and keeps that tension going is um, obviously that the, the family has they have a plan. They they've lived through this apocalypse for quite a long time, and they have. I really like that they had the mattress and the soundproofing in mm. place. But with the grain silo, that was one of the main moments where there was a loss of control. If those kids hadn't have moved, they would have suffocated. They would have sunk into the grain suffocated they had to move but in moving they were making noise and that was one of the set of pieces that made me feel the most panic in a way because they they had to do the thing that was going to get them killed whereas i think quite a few of the set pieces in the house mm -hmm. part of the enjoyment for me was 
the tension of not knowing what was going to happen, but then also seeing the systems and the plans that they had in place to try and overcome these situations. And are they going to do that in time? Whereas this was, you've just got to stay alive for the moment so that you can then possibly try and survive the monster when it comes. Yeah, the, the grain salad sequence is, is amazing. And this is a film that works so successfully for me that we're not even doing that thing we normally do in spoiler specials, which is where we, we nitpick the film to death because there, there are a number of things you could nitpick. We, we, we nitpicked a little bit, but there are a couple of inconsistencies. For example, the, the, uh, the, the, the space bastard that rips open the grain silo. Admittedly, it is hurting at that, at that moment and it's full of rage and it's just blindly lashing out and it just tears open the grain silo like it's paper. Then two minutes later, can't rip through a car mm. to, to get to the mm. kids. That's fine. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the monster's claws being as sharp as they need to be, uh, depending on the demands of the script. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I think because you, you're so caught up in it in yeah. the moment, you're more just relieved that it can't get into the car than, than <laughs> thinking about why it can't. Yeah. Um, I think my, my other one nitpick um, would be I wasn't so keen on some of the music in the film, and that's because I, I think the silence was so powerful that some of the, the mournful score, I get that it was getting across the kind of the the bleakness of the situation that that they're in but i thought that the score it even though it wasn't there a lot of the time when it was it did feel weirdly intrusive at moments because of how like powerful the rest of the silence is but i mean that that was the one thing that i came out thinking if i had one nitpick and it is a nitpick because the rest of it is so good Oh, sorry. I think it was a bit, it was patchy for me because there were moments of high emotional intensity where it felt it was totally kind of maybe a little bit overdone. I didn't need that signposting doing. But there was also moments where it's kind of, especially when it was more playing with suspense, where it's almost Hitchcockian in its use. And I, I enjoyed that. And for me, that kind of really added to it. And all it did was amp up my already massive anxiety by about another 20 points. And there were moments when it was an assault on the senses. I mean, this is what I enjoyed about this film is one minute you're in absolute silence and next it's like screaming abject horror, <laughs> um, which is kind of like my inner monologue on any given Wednesday. But I, I kind of enjoyed that and I think that the, the scores place in that was... Abs- I mean, the sound design overall yeah. is incredible, but the mm, score specifically, yeah. I think. So there were, there were moments where I felt it was a slightly overwhelming, but I really benefited it from it a lot of the other time, especially when you're building suspense in those set pieces. And what was interesting as well about the score is that uh, Krasinski was planning for it from the beginning. As he mm. says in his piece he wrote for Empire, he had Marco Beltrami come and visit the set and get an idea of what they were doing so he could even then begin crafting his score. So it wasn't a case of uh, we're, in, we're in the edit, it isn't quite working, let's bring in someone to do a, to do a score. And it, uh, it's at least one of the questions I didn't ask Krasinski, and I, I'm kind of kicking myself I didn't, but clearly score to him was was very important. It's not a documentary, just, uh, there's mm. nothing wrong with with artificially inducing some panic in people. I think that's totally, totally fine. Um, there's so much I love about this film. One of the things I love about this film is that it's 90 minutes long. <laughs> I mean, Perfect film. It's, it's, it's so great. Uh, so many movies need to be 90 minutes long. The greatest film of all time, Evil Dead 2, is 84 minutes long. <laughs> More films should be 90 minutes. Uh, speaking of it only being 90 minutes, we should talk about the ending, which is, uh, mm-hmm. I think, excellent, but abrupt and in some ways... Uh, I guess some people might have felt that they wanted some conclusion to it. I don't think there's any conclusion to that film that would have been more satisfying than that moment. Uh, and also, but frankly, when it finishes, there's a part of you that's just relieved because yeah, the tension yeah. lifts. You're like, oh, 
Oh! <laughs> but also, I think this goes back to the point you were making about it doesn't replicate set pieces. Mm. And I think had we seen her take on another two creatures and dispatch them in the same way that she had just dispatched the first one, it would have got a little bit old. Yeah. Yeah. But there's so much... There's so much that's left open to interpretation. There's so much that's still ambiguous about that ending. As Krasinski said in the interview, does she even have enough bullets to take out mm. two, two baddies? You'd hope that she would. Mm. You'd hope this family that's incredibly prepared surely has to have more than just two bullets in their, in their shotgun. I love the, the just the shared moment between mother and daughter mm. where she cranks the volume up and she yeah. cranks the shotgun. Yeah. And it's just like the, the look of sort of determination on her face, that kind of steely eyed look she gives you before it cuts away. But, um, but there's meant to be a resolution of sorts, right? Which is that they've discovered the thing that will keep them at least at bay. Yes. But I, in my head, so I feel like you leave them, it's kind of perfect. So I hate a film that is like neatly wrapped up and it feels like you're just leaving them at a moment before, as you say, probably another battle in another battle. In my head, the real ending, where this ends up, is they all die anyway. So, because... <laughs> that is the most you thing ever. Because, because I'm like, they probably haven't got enough bullets, and how long is that really going to work? And it works, it, it kind of it kind of rejects them, but you know what, they're going to get split up at some point, and she's not going to be around, and she's going to sacrifice, sacrifice herself for the baby. And mm-hmm. the thing is, this all ends in the death of civilization. So I didn't really see the point I, in that I don't in the know. ending. I think there's a note of hope here at the end. I think this this movie for me, you can you, when you have a horror film like this, you can go one of two ways. You can kill everybody. You can go full John Carpenter's a thing and have a really bleak nihilistic ending where it's all fucked. You, or, or or invasion of the body snatchers. You can have Donald Sutherland pointing and, and going. <laughs> you can do that, or you can do what Romero did, not in Night of the Living Dead, but in Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, which is you can have your heroes still on the board, so to speak, and you can give them just. Just a soup son of hope. Mm. Just something that they're going to stay alive and they're going to stay alive for the foreseeable future. But the the wider picture is still fucked. Everything's still fucked. But I, I you know, so they've got they've got this method of killing the the space bastards. There's only two but, more in the area. Only, but in the area. So yeah. if those two in the area get where what there may be three hundred thousand nationwide. Yeah. How do, how do we know it's just the Hudson Always Valley? Always with you, what cannot be done. So uh, my point is that they, I think, because also the the alternative, right, maybe they get rid of those two and they find a way. I don't know where everybody else is because obviously they went to the store and you don't see another person apart from old old man River and his dead wife. Um, <laughs> and yet you have the fires. Yes. But, <laughs> but the fires are out by the second the, time, by the, the second night. But then her fire's not on for very long, is it? So True. So, yeah. But again, that's ambiguous. You don't know whether those yeah. people have been killed mm. what is, what in the interim. Is, what, what is left of civilization? Who knows? Yeah. And also, like the his death is so devastating and obviously a brilliantly valiant and allows him to have the resolution with his relationship, with, especially with his daughter. Oh, which my is God, really that important. moment where he signs, signs to his daughter. Oh, oh Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, if I was her for the rest of my life, my biggest regret is I hadn't worked out the... Um, yeah, I hadn't worked out. I the turned thing it off. Just five minutes before, and yeah. should have saved her dad as well, so now she's got to but carry that guilt. Equally, she's probably thinking, you couldn't have just, I don't know, thrown the pickaxe at a window or something and made some noise elsewhere. You didn't need to shout at it, but anyway. He was dying. Yeah. He was, yeah. He'd been he'd, he'd already, already been had mauled, his. hadn't he? But I, mm. that's that sac- that scene of sacrifice and love, and again, really, at, at one of its most bloody, violent moments, and in quite a bleak circumstance, reminding you once again of the heart and humanity at the, at the top of this film that he signed. That his last message was. To there is literally only one character in this film that isn't part of the family unit: the man in the woods mm. who just shouts. 
so it is just yeah. about that. Those space bastards, they <laughs> done kill my wife. I'm furious. <laughs> yes, him. I'm done gonna scream. <laughs> Oh, God. It's dialogue that was cut from the movie. <laughs> Don't know why. Um, Martha? Oh, Martha! But they have got to my point being that we also can't forget that in the end, as well as battling the Space Bastards, um, I think that... Yes, what, thank you for making that an official name. It's now a thing. So catching on. Um, you also, you're really aware, the film doesn't let you forget that they will also be mourning another human loss. That's yes. two members of their family mm. that have been taken by the Space Bastards. Yeah. And that's a really kind of sobering thought as well. And for him as well, he, he has just seen his baby son for the first time and he knows he's never going to see his son again. Yeah. And that moment of that moment of just letting go is is glorious. I, I teared up at it. It was absolutely incredible. Again, to have that connection with characters where you don't even know their names is is extraordinary. And there's another thing as well about the ending in that, in terms of the bleakness of the ending, in that we see Krasinski trying to contact not just people locally but people around the world, mm. and the world seems to have gone dark. And you can absolutely understand why. But there is a wider question, like how many of them are out there, those space bastards? What are they up to? And can, can a young mother with a young daughter with, uh, with a hearing aid really be the spark that fans the flames, that lights the fires, <laughs> that kicks the tires, that, you know, that, that burns the space bastards first order down? I think rather than more of a like, conclusion on that, it left me that like, slight moment of triumph at the end where it, it, it reminded me a bit of, of Jaws, like smile, you son of a bitch, and then it just leaves it there. <laughs> that... Instead of me, I found it a weirdly like upbeat ending where I was like, right, now I want a sequel. Genuinely, I was like, if there was a sequel right now of Emily Blunt wandering the wasteland with a speaker strapped to her back and a shotgun <laughs> with the kids going off into the world, they know how to kill the creatures, doing it, especially because a lot of the, um, of the conclusion is them working out what the weakness is. And it has a, a bit of alien in that where it's like, these bastards are really hard to kill, but we've found a way or we've found their weakness that now you do like an Aliens-esque follow-up where they're everywhere and it's more expansive and um, you've done the suspense thing. Now make it like panic, big, scary, but actually them going out into the wasteland, dealing with the emotional fallout of everything that's happened and possibly finding other survivors or like so many films you end uh, that have such a good concept like that. It ends and you go that was amazing as it was. I'm so glad this exists, but I don't want more. This genuinely left me wanting more because no. of where it signposts. Get that. thee behind me. No, <laughs> I didn't think of Alien. It made me think of Independence Day. Yeah, I, saw, yeah. I, saw, I saw like Randy Quaid like flying up into the thing. Let's tell them how to take these sons of bitches down. You know, I thought, and they'll tell everyone and then you'll see people all around the world killing the aliens. Yes. With the... <laughs> yeah. Makes and you wonder if the world scientists... We all scientists... sing Yub and go home. It makes you wonder how the world scientists never never stumbled upon that in the first place. You know, they've got massive ears, guys. Yeah. Try and use sound play some death metal or something as a weapon. Yeah, but it was accidental, and of course, it was the symbol of the father's enduring love for his daughter that she yeah. didn't know about that ultimately ultimately saves it. But you know, honestly, the the true magic was the friends they made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm absolutely torn about the idea of a sequel. I can see why you wouldn't want to spoil this movie, but at the same time, I could also see a dozen Quiet Place movies with different characters dealing with different situations around the world. Uh, podcasters, how do we... How, do, how would podcasters deal with space bastards coming through the window? 
people in tower blocks, the president, uh, you know, maybe not the one they no. have now. <laughs> he wouldn't deal well no. with, with the space bastards, would he? He would, he would glower at them. You know the picture of him yelling at that kid in the White House lawn? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be him. Get off my lawn! Martha! <laughs> That's my, my Donald Trump. Oh, shit! They done killed my pants! Mike! Anyway, so I'd quite like to see something like that and with a whole bunch of different directors and maybe rather than have Emily Blunt wander the backwaters of, of USA, you could have an anthology series. You could have all sorts of different directors coming on and, and putting their stamp on this on this, uh, this nascent franchise. And it will be a franchise because it's going to make a shit tonne of cash. Mm. It's the biggest opening since Black Panther, right? Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a big old opening. And what's the film's budget? I don't think they've officially said, but it's it's, Blum, it's Blumhouse product. It's yeah. Blumhouse. It's not a Blumhouse production, but it's Blumhouse budget levels. Mm. I think this is this is Platinum Dunes, of course, and this is Platinum Dunes is Michael Bay's horror production company, and this film for me is the biggest example of even a stop clock tells the correct time twice a day that there has been for a long, long time. Platinum Dunes film. <laughs> because Platinum Dunes, God bless them. Um, remakes, isn't it, that thing? It's remakes, and it's... You know, so they've, they've done the remake of The Hitcher and Friday the 13th and uh, Nightmare on Elm Texas Street, Chainsaw Massacre and Nightmare on Elm Street. And they're okay, but they haven't really hit one out of the park. And the, the company's mainly run by Andrew Form, Drew Form and, uh, and Bradley Fuller. But this, finally, this is an original film. And I wonder if this has been maybe precipitated a little bit by the success of Blumhouse, who've had such success with their original concepts and doing $5 million, $10 million budget levels. So why not go in and why not try and take them on their own game? I, I read today that um, the the Platinum Dunes guys have now said, we are not going to do remakes anymore, that they are going to be going in on doing these original films. And, and like you said, I think Blumhouse and the success of, of all those kind of, yeah, tiny budget, if it, it'll make it back in a weekend at least, and hopefully we should... I mean, I feel like we're living in a really, really good time for horror films at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many examples just in the last few years of either stuff that's really high concept or mm-hmm. just really well done, or even some of the, like, schlockier stuff, like some of the, like, Annabelle creation I saw last year. And it's, it's, it's not amazing, but it was, like, it was really fun and really tight. That's really um, solid. It's got a really interesting concept to uh, mm-hmm. approach to jump scares. Yeah. Uh, I thought was, was, was cool. And this movie has as well. These are jump scares, but not in the traditional mm. sense of the jump scare. The kid grabbing her arm when she's reaching for the torch was the biggest jump scare for me. You know, when she's yes. looking for it and he grabs her arm and I lost my shit. Absolutely <laughs> lost it. <laughs> I love that it mostly adheres to the rule of jump scares as well, where it's it's okay. A loud noise is okay if it's a, a loud noise within the world of the film that the characters are also experiencing, and it yeah. does that the majority of the time. I think there were one or two where it's like a loud stab of music, which sometimes um, for me feels a little bit cheap, hmm. but um, because of the of the concept of it, and there, there are moments where organically the characters make noise, and that is what not only makes you jump, but then makes you immediately fear for what's going to come next. Um, I, I thought I thought it told a really good line of that, but yeah, I'm I'm excited about what's what, what the uh, the future holds, whether we get more Quiet Place movies or not. But uh, I did mention right back at the beginning of the podcast that there is a novel by a, an author called Tim Lebin called The Silence, which has a very similar premise to this. And I've seen some people uh, on Twitter and online suggesting whether this movie was inspired in some way by The Silence. Just a simple look at Wikipedia says that the writers, the original writers, Brian Woods and Scott Beck, started the Felbiness in 2013, and Tim Levin's novel comes out in 2015. So I think this is an Armageddon deep impact situation where two films are being developed 
at the same time. Great minds think alike. But what's interesting is that there is a film of the silence and it has been made. It is in the can. Uh, it is coming out, potentially coming out this year. And it stars Emily Blunt's brother-in-law, Stanley the Tucci. Tucci. So that'd be an interesting whispered conversation around the dinner table at the, <laughs> the Blunt family Christmas, wouldn't it? Yeah. But I'm intrigued to see how that movie does now because it's just... It feels already pre-damned in a way, doesn't it? It'll mm. come out and people will go, oh, this is just a Quiet Place ripoff. I mean, it re- I mean, I was. we had this conversation in the office yesterday and I went to look up about this and it is really similar. There's, there's I mean, a yeah. hearing, hearing impaired child yep. um, in the woods. It's, I mean, there's being attacked through sound. I mean, it's, yeah. it's incredibly similar. I haven't read it. Um, I've downloaded it. I haven't read it yet. But I've, you kind of feel for them, right? Because yeah. it's and this has been so remarkable. If this had been a bit of a damp squid, then fair enough. But it's been so remarkable and it's so unique, and that's what people have responded to. Yeah. How how you know genre bending and innovative and interesting it is that you kind of think that's a really hard act to follow, yeah. not to be seen as derivative in any way, yeah. even if it isn't in any way derivative. Because we're not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that no. Quiet Place is uh, it has ripped off or is derivative of Absolutely. the silence. But I, I was on a I was on a website. Tim, I think it was Tim Levin's website and someone was going have you have you heard of this this film quiet place? he was giving an update on the silence the uh, movie adaptation of the silence and someone was going have you seen have you heard of this film a quiet place and he's like yeah we're aware of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i don't think they were expecting it to be the hit that it is which perhaps is going to cause problems for them down the line but one last thing before we wrap this bad boy up and uh and then tip to our way out of the uh, the pod booth i actually cut this out in the main podcast last week ben for because we were running a little bit over for time but you and I had a conversation about whether this movie could stick around as an Oscar contender mm-hmm. for next year. And so I cut that out so we can have the conversation again. <laughs> um, do we think this movie can pull a get out and can it be a contender in the Oscars next year? I don't think so. And, and I don't think that's not because it's it's undeserving. I think get out was... Um, uh, a kind of a rare case and I think part of that was the kind of social circumstance that went around Get Out. It was incredibly prescient in terms of what was going on socially, racially. It spoke to a bigger thing in society and I think that positioned the film fairly differently and, and many it had reach above and beyond um, the genre of which it was in because horror, as we all know, traditionally does not do well. Well, genre films don't do well at the Oscars. I would love it to be I think maybe there's a, a screenplay or there's something in there or a craft award but I don't think the um, Oscar committee still have that commitment or that real belief in genre movies that we would hope that they would yeah I would hope that the success of uh, Get Out and certainly the, sh- the Shape of Water will have will have softened the Academy's attitude towards genre film I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I think you're right. For all those reasons, I don't think this is going to stick around too much. But it might get some tech stuff. If this doesn't get nominated for sound mixing and sound editing, mm-hmm. something seriously wrong, people. Uh, but I would love to see it hang around. But, but then we, that, that would mean we'd have to cling to the notion that the uh, Academy rewards the best films of the year, and that ain't always the case. <laughs> but you know what? There's always the Empire Awards, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Always the Empire Awards. So Stand by your phone, John. Get voting now. Voting is open in uh, October. Hooray! <laughs> right. Anything else you want to say about this this incredible film? Or are we, are, are we done? We're done. We're done. Your silence speaks volumes. <laughs> <laughs> and that is it. That is it, definitely, from our Quiet Place a Spoiler Special. Join us every Friday for regular film-related fun on the Mothership podcast. Uh, our Ready Player One Spoiler Special with uh, screenwriter Ernest Klein is also up around now. 
And after that, our next spoiler special, I think it's going to be a little film called Avengers Infinity War. Strap yourselves in, that one's going to be a long one. That's going to be a long one. You think 50 minutes in Quiet Place is impressive? You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, but until then, it is goodbye from Ben. <laughs> That's my, like, sonar way of saying goodbye. I like it. It's goodbye from James. If I hear you, I'll hunt you. <laughs> How is that that is different? a threat. Yeah, it's no different to a normal day. It's goodbye from Terry. Bye-bye from the space bastard. <laughs> can we not call them fuck monkeys? I think Thanks maybe we should have adopted monkey. that. Fuck yeah. monkey we, space bastard. Can this not stick, please? <laughs> I think so your nickname stuck. is now set in stone. Oh. Ever, ever fucked a space bastard, Ben? <laughs> I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. That means yes. (laughs) Damn it. Yeah. What happens in Space Bastard Phil stays in Space Bastard Phil. Uh, And it's goodbye for me as well. I'm off to write Run Silent, Run Deep, colon, A Quiet Place 2, colon, Quiet Harder, which will star John Krasinski as the ghost twin of his character in this movie, as you heard. Krasinski, you'd better not be lying to me. That, That better be a go project, because I'm counting on it. I'm counting on it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.